the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Matt Stanford. He is CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston and is an adjunct professor in the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Baylor College of Medicine and the Department of Psychology at the University of Houston. He's a fellow of the Association of Psychological Science. He's the author of over 100 peer-reviewed journal articles in uh, psychology, psychiatry, and neuroscience. The book we're going to be talking about is much more accessible than that introduction may have uh, suggested, Grace for the Afflicted, a clinical and biblical perspective on mental illness. Mr. Uh, or Dr. Stanford will join us later this hour. Well, it's been more than 50 years since President John F. Kennedy was shot by Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. I was a kid at the time. I remember very vividly where I was when I heard the news. Well, since then, hundreds of conspiracies surrounding that shooting have uh, have emerged, fueling debate over who was responsible, why it happened, and, well, other questions. But with the president uh, promising to release the full batch of documents, which are going to be posted online today by the National Archives, more on that in a moment, conspiracy theorists and historians uh, could finally have the answers to the questions they have long asked about that tragic day in American history. Chances are, not so much. The release comes 25 years after the president, uh, John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992 was signed into law. It mandated the release by a specific deadline of all JFK files that are currently held by the government. Note all the files. Um, Many conspiracy theorists have, in the interim, believed that Oswald did not act alone. Indeed, the theory, better known as the Grassy Knoll theory, one of many, posits that another gun was fired from an area to the right of the president's motorcade. Conspiracy uh, theorists, theorists rather, argue that Oswald, who was perched on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, um, with a particular kind of infantry rifle, could not have delivered such a fatal shot from that angle. Shortly after the assassination, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Kennedy's vice president, signed an executive order to create the president's commission on the assassination of President Kennedy, more commonly known as the Warren Commission, named after Chief Justice Earl Warren, who led that panel. Ten months after its creation, which seemed like ten years for those of us waiting for answers, the Warren Commission found no evidence of a second shooter. However, the investigation uh, did find that JFK's murder um, and uh, the theories surrounding it um, did yield some information. The House voted to establish a U.S. House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1976. Uh, the committee concluded that there was probably a second shooter on the grassy knoll. So you have the Warren Commission that says, no, there's no evidence. You have the 
the committee in Congress that says, yes, there probably was. Even one acoustical study, which analyzed two police channel recordings from that day in relation to the gunshot-like sound from the grassy knoll, concluded that, and I quote, the gunshot-like sound occurred exactly synchronous with the time of the shooting, end quote. While both findings have been discredited, forensic evidence convinced experts that it wasn't true. Historians and best-selling author Doug Weed, he says conspiracists, um, they continue to grow the theory. It would be wonderful if the theory could be resolved. Hopefully we will see some of that in the documents. But he added this information may be redacted. Anybody who thinks this is going to turn the case on its head and suddenly show that there were three or four shooters um, in that plaza, it's not the case. Gerald Posner, the author of Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald and the assassination of JFK, speaking on CNN. Instead, the files could clarify exactly what happened after the shots were fired. While conspiracy theorists argue that Oswald was ordered by Soviet or Cuban agents to kill Kennedy, especially because the one-time Marine defected to the Soviet Union, the same 1976 committee did not find any evidence of Soviet, Cuban, or CIA involvement in his assassination, according to the Washington Post. Well, uh, James Jim Leavell has uh, answered questions surrounding the assassination for five decades. They're thinking they're going to find something new that nobody ever knows about or knew about, Mr. Levell says, known for his uh, tan suit, tall cowboy hat. He was the man to Oswald's right when Jack Ruby shot and killed Oswald. He was helping transfer Oswald when the shot was fired. You got a job to do. I had a job to save that man's life, he says. That's uh, what uh, was going on through my mind at the time. He, too, suggests that there's probably not as much new information that will... uh, resolve some of these conflicts and theories as uh, one might uh, hope, but that the information will be released. Now, the White House said earlier today that they're going to release just 2,800 classified files related to the former president's assassination today, but it will temporarily keep some sensitive, in quotes, records under wraps. A senior administration official told reporters that some sensitive documents are being held for 180 days due to concerns from some intelligence agencies. Those documents, an official said, are being reviewed by the agencies to determine whether they actually affect national security, which is very curious after 25 years that at the final moment they would determine that some pages might have an impact on national security, which may give us a hint as to the nature of that information. The president wrote in a memo released by the White House uh, this evening ahead of the release, I have no choice today but to accept those redactions rather than allow potentially irreversible harm to our nation's security. He said he's ordering the agencies to review each and every one of those redactions over the next 180 days. At the end of that period, I will order the public disclosure of any information that the agencies cannot demonstrate meets the statutory standard for continued postponement of disclosure, Trump said. So while um, 2,800 documents, uh, pages will be released and have been released online today, there are still those uh, documents that over the next 180 days uh, will be reviewed, I suppose, once again to determine whether or not they have national security implications. But today, the day that was named some 25 years ago for that information to be made public. Well, the House voted today to adopt a Senate-passed Republican budget plan that clears the way for a sweeping overhaul of the tax code for both individuals and businesses that could add uh, as much as $1.5 trillion to the national debt. Hmm. 
The budget measure approved by a narrow margin of 216 to 212 differs sharply from one the House approved back in October the 5th. Back then, House Republicans uh, mandated that any tax credits from uh, tax cuts rather from lowering tax rates have to be offset by closing loopholes or cutting spending. Apparently, they've changed their mind after the Senate last week approved a plan that would allow tax changes that add as much as one point five trillion dollars to the debt. The House went along with many members saying they needed to deliver a major legislative win going into the 2018 midterm elections. I'm not sure how they're defining when when you're adding one point five trillion dollars to the national debt. But that's a quote. Nonetheless, a key provision of the budget is reconciliation language. It prevents Democrats in the Senate from using a filibuster against a tax bill, which would require 60 votes to overcome. Instead, Republicans who hold 52 Senate seats, they're going to need only 50 votes, which may be somewhat daunting given the uh, recent history and the support of Vice President Mike Pence to pass the tax bill. But the tax bill still has not been released. The differences over many details remain, meaning passage of a final bill remains uncertain. Supporters say that they believe tax cuts will spur economic growth, will offset some of the lost revenue from lower rates. But Senator Bob Corker has uh, said he would not support a plan that uh, significantly increased the debt. He believes Congress needs to do the hard work of ending deductions and loopholes to pay for lower rates. Just a glimpse into the back and forth we can expect over the next weeks and perhaps months as they try to come up with some sort of um, tax reform bill. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, coming up uh, later this hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Matt Stanford. His book is titled Grace for the Afflicted, A Clinical and Biblical Perspective on Mental Illness. Well, conservative lawmakers said any tax reform plan needs to benefit the middle class and begin to address the national debt. Well, since, of course, the House approved the budget plan, they're now on track to move on to tax reform. Let's just focus on designing a tax code that does those three things, allows families to keep more of their money, simplifies a totally cumbersome and ridiculous code, and one that will foster and promote and is conducive to economic growth. That's what Representative Jim Jordan, Republican out of Ohio, said on Tuesday at Conversations with Conservatives. It's a monthly press Q&A hosted by conservative lawmakers and the Heritage Foundation. Focus on that and we'll be a lot better off, he went on to say. Well, Republicans' tax reform framework presented uh, in late September by House Speaker Paul Ryan, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and other GOP leaders, seeks to significantly simplify the tax code. Says Jordan, to deal with a debt of $20 trillion, make that 21.5 under this new budget, you'll have to grow the economy at 3.5 to 4 percent. And you cannot grow uh, for a sustainable period of time at 3.5 to 4 percent unless you reform the tax code. So let's just focus on that. Well, the Republican tax plan calls for roughly doubling taxpayers' standard deduction. An individual's first $12,000 of income would become tax-free, as would the first $24,000 for married couples and for condensing the current seven tax brackets to three. Well, depending on their income, individual taxpayers currently are taxed at one of the following rates, 10, 15, 25, 28, 33, 35, or 39.6. 
The three tax brackets in the Republicans' proposed framework are 12 percent, 25 and 35 percent, respectively. However, on Friday, uh, Paul Ryan said the tax plan will include a fourth bracket for high income earners. We don't know what that will be yet. The framework would uh, the framework rather would end personal exemptions for dependents, increase the child tax credit and eliminate the estate tax, which opponents call the death tax. Representative uh, Matt Gates, a Republican from Florida, said he thinks Republicans will be better served once the tax plan is actually a bill. It seems to me this tax bill is like a political Rorschach test and everybody stares at the inkblot and kind of sees what they want to see because we don't have a bill. That is always helpful to actually have a bill. The Florida lawmaker said that he's concerned that Republicans' budget, which, according to the House Budget Committee, balances the budget within 10 years without raising taxes and puts the country on a path to paying off the national debt, is not as good as it could be. Gates said, I feel a particular obligation on this issue because I am one of the youngest members of Congress, and I think history is going to judge the young members of Congress the harshest if we facilitate a bill that isn't paid for and a budget that doesn't have the aspiration to balance ever. Well, the vote on the budget, which uh, creates the vehicle reconciliation through which lawmakers hope to pass the tax reform with 51 votes, um, took place today. However, some are questioning the passage of the budget over whether or not the final tax plan will eliminate the state and local tax deduction still up in the air. Eliminating the the, uh, deduction rather would provide roughly one point three trillion dollars in tax revenue. uh, But lawmakers from some districts. Uh, that are highly taxed in places like New York, say taxpayers in their districts count on the deduction and would see a tax increase if the state and local deduction is scrapped. Some lawmakers are threatening to not vote to pass the bill, the, the budget, in fact, if the deduction remains eliminated in the tax plan. But again, it's not yet in writing, and now the tax plan has passed. There would need to be uh, more progress made in figuring out the solution on this issue in order for me to vote for the resolution on Thursday. Lee Zeldin did. I don't know whether or not he voted in favor of it. What I do know is it passed. Representative Scott Perry said tax reform is needed to return to American uh, taxpayers what is rightly theirs. I fundamentally think that our taxpayers, it's their money first. I never subscribe to that whole thing about giving it back to them. We shouldn't take it from them in the first place, he says. Well, Representative Mark Walker Again, one of the conservative Republicans out of North Carolina, chairman of the Republican Study Committee, said the House should forge ahead with working to pass tax reform despite delays and obstacles the Senate may see. If we ever get to the place where we are legislating based on what the Senate may or may not do, it's not a good day for America, he says. Well, calling it a national shame and human tragedy, President Trump today declared the opioid epidemic crippling American communities a public health emergency and pledged federal resources to help combat the growing problem. Addressing it will require all of our effort and it will require us to confront the crisis in all its real complexity, the president said during a speech in the East Room of the White House. As Americans, we cannot allow this to continue, he said. It's time to liberate our communities from the scourge. Uh, We can be the generation that ends the opioid epidemic. Trump spoke to an audience at the White House that included family members of those affected by the opioid crisis, as well as several administration officials and elected leaders. The president, who said no one part of the American society has been spared from the crisis, stopped short of calling for a national emergency. That's something previously promised by the president. The announcement follows months of debate on how to tackle the problem. That uh, To say it follows months of debate 
uh, refuses to look at the decades of debate that have been going on on this very issue, although not specifically focused on opioids. We can be the generation that ends the opioid epidemic, the president said. But again, this was not a national emergency that brings with it funding. Trump himself has gone on record more than once saying that he would declare the crisis a national emergency. Such a designation would allow states to tap into the same federal funds typically reserved for national disasters like hurricanes uh, through the uh, Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act. Perhaps one reason he chose not to do that is that... um, Relief and Emergency Assistance Act is strained to uh, the near limit. Instead, he signed a presidential memo that directs Acting Health and Human Services Secretary Eric Hargan to declare a public health emergency under the Public Health Services Act, which directs federal agencies to provide more grant money to combat the epidemic. Well, the designation will also allow changes such as expanded access to medical services in rural areas. It doesn't create any additional funding. As I mentioned, the emergency declaration will last 90 days but can be renewed ad uh, infinitum. In 2015, 33,091 people died from opioid overdose, while 12.5 million people misused prescription opioids, according to the most recent statistics available from the Department of Health and Human Services. The president said today, that um, he also revealed plans to take the evil opioid off the market immediately, as well as the government's intention to bring lawsuits against some of the drug makers, though he did not provide specifics. He also vowed to crack down on heroin imports from Mexico and fentanyl imports from China. Uh, two up-and-coming drugs in this country. Pharmaceutical fentanyl is an opioid drug that's up uh, to 100 times more potent than morphine. In the past, drug dealers... Um, Use it to spike the potency of the heroin they sold, but traffickers are now selling fentanyl by itself. Drug deaths involving fentanyl increased uh, nearly 600 percent from 2014 to 2016. Uh, there were 582 fatal overdoses linked to the synthetic drug in 2014. Last year, 3,946. The president also discussed the alcohol addiction that claimed his older brother Fred's life in 1981. Fred had a problem with alcohol, the president said, and would tell me, don't drink, don't drink. The president uh, said watching his brother as well as other friends struggle with addiction is what set him on a drug-free, non-alcohol, non-cigarette path. There is nothing desirable about drugs, Trump said. They're bad. Well, the president vowed to tackle the opioid crisis on the campaign trail, but critics claim his administration has been slow to act. He created a presidential commission um, in August recommended he declare the crisis a national emergency. You know, again, the act that's used to fund that uh, is linked to natural disasters, and it may be that the decision was made not to tap into that fund, which is uh, nearly tapped out. Um, your declaration would empower your cabinet to take bold steps, would force Congress to focus on funding and empowering the executive branch even further to deal with this loss of life. The Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis wrote it would also awaken every American to this simple fact. If this scourge has not found you or your family yet without bold action by everyone, it will soon. The White House told reporters this morning that a national emergency declaration was not necessary in the case of opioid, that the public health emergency will reorient it, reorient rather all of the federal government and executive branch resources toward focusing on providing relief to this urgent need. And of course, that declaration could be altered at some point uh, in the future if that's the decision that's ultimately made. Coming up, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Matt Stanford, his book, Grace for the Afflicted, A Clinical and Biblical Perspective on Mental Illness. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. As, a, as both a church leader and a professor of psychology and behavioral sciences, my next guest, Matthew Stanford, has seen far too many mental ill uh, brothers and sisters damaged by well-meaning believers who respond to them out of fear or misinformation. His latest book, Grace for the Afflicted, is written to educate Christians about mental illness from both biblical and scientific perspectives. He presents insights into our physical and spiritual nature, discusses the appropriate role of psychology and psychiatry in the life of the believer, describing common mental disorders. He probes what science says and what the Bible says about each illness. Um, Dr. Matthew Stanford is CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston and is adjunct professor in the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Baylor College of Medicine and the Department of Psychology at the University of Houston. A fellow of the Association for Psychological Science, he is the author of over 100 peer-reviewed journal articles in psychology, psychiatry, and neuroscience. He joins us today to talk about his book, Grace for the Afflicted, A Clinical and Biblical Perspective, on mental illness. Dr. Stanford, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, this edition is revised and expanded. Um, Why do you think this is important right now for the body of Christ in particular uh, to embrace in order that we might um, relate to those among us with mental illness better? Well, I mean, I think a couple of reasons. Number one, we have a, a real mental health crisis here in the country, really globally, um, we have one out of every five Americans in a given year will meet criteria for a mental health problem. 450 million people in the world are struggling with a mental health problem. And probably the thing that really uh, calls the church to be involved is the fact that people that are in psychological distress, people that are struggling with these problems, are more likely to go to a clergy for assistance before they go to a mental health care provider or physician. Now, define what you mean by mental illness, because I imagine there's a spectrum, and for us to better understand what we're talking about, can you describe that spectrum for us? Yeah, when, when I say mental illness or mental disorder, I'm talking about a, a set of kind of well-defined disorders where an individual is, has a, their, their cognitive function, their mood, their feelings, their ability to relate to others affected at such a level uh, they become so dysfunctional that with, without some type of intervention, they're not able to kind of live their life normally. And so, you know, things like clinical depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, post-traumatic stress disorder, things like that, uh, which are different than, say, if somebody is, say, just profoundly sad or is having struggles with stress or worrying. I mean, those can be a problem, but they don't really cross the line into being a mental disorder. You begin the book with the chapter titled Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And I think it's a challenge to many believers to accept the idea that one can be a believer and still struggle with a mental disorder or or full-on mental illness. Um, Talk a little bit about the fact that we are designed by God and what we do with the, the idea that some among us are struggling with mental illness. Yeah, I think that, you know, unfortunately in the church, uh, really in the population in general, but, but uh, particularly in the church, we've treated thoughts, feelings, uh, cognitions uh, that come from our brain very differently than uh, our other organs. I mean, one of the things is we, we seem to think that those are somehow more spiritual or more related to the spiritual than, say, how the, the function of our liver or our pancreas, when in reality our brain is an organ like any other organ in our body, 
It can be damaged. I mean, a good example would be something like Alzheimer's disease where a, a degenerative disorder is occurring and the, and the brain is actually dying in certain areas. Uh, very few Christians have a problem kind of conceptualizing that in a uh, kind of biological, uh, organ-based uh, realm. But when you think about depression or anxiety, because all of us have been sad or worried at times, we think we fully understand what it is to have depression or what it is to have an anxiety issue. But the reality is, is that being sad and being anxious, uh, those are not the same as having a disorder of those systems. Uh, and so while our experience may be meaningful to us, it doesn't fully explain to us what's going on for somebody who has a real disorder that's kind of a brain-based phenomenon. You have a chapter uh, that follows Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, uh, titled The Adversary. Uh, I I know that many people who struggle and maybe have sought counseling through a a pastor or a clergy, a church staff member, are told that that this is a spiritual um, oppression, that this is evidence of demonic possession. Draw a distinction between the kind of physical malady that you describe that manifests as mental illness and the possibility of other uh, spiritual things, because there's uh, it's difficult to clarify in a position of uh, of leadership what's what's actually going on. Right, and, and first let me say I believe in the demonic. I believe in a literal devil, and I believe in demonic kind of minions or or kind of foot soldiers of the devil. So I, I believe that those things. Occur. I believe that the demonic are out to thwart the purposes and people of God. Uh, but, I, you know, I think one of the things first I'd say is that we tend to treat mental health problems differently in the context of the demonic as we do physical health problems. Clearly, there are individuals in the scriptures who are made ill by the demonic. But you rarely ever hear a pastor or someone in a church questioning someone about their liver cancer, uh, if that may be demonic. But you very quickly hear them question whether their bipolar disorder may be demonic. So I think one thing is we have to make sure we treat these illnesses equivalently to other physical illnesses. I think secondly, I would say this. I think that, you know, we are questionably sensitive when it comes to the to the demonic in the context of affliction, where the demonic makes us ill. I certainly would never be able to differentiate a person who is crippled by a physical malady versus somebody who is crippled by uh, the demonic. But Jesus certainly could do that. In fact, we even have an example of that in the Scripture. So my suggestion to Christians today for with people with mental illnesses, don't be too concerned about the kind of the 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 basis or the genesis of the problem, just recognize that the person in front of you is ill, that they're in distress, uh, and you have any number of opportunities to serve them and help them. One is to pray for them. Pray against the demonic for them. I hope that people pray against the demonic for me. All Christians should have people praying against the demonic for them. Pray for healing. God does intervene and heal uh, in our world. But also pursue uh, treatment and recovery in the natural. Help them get the physicians. Help them get the psychologists like myself. Help them get the support groups. Support their family. Do the types of things that you might do for somebody who had another type of illness. If we're doing those types of things, I think that uh, we're doing what God's called us to do, and that's to serve others, to be a, a, a spiritual foundation for them as they struggle uh, through these difficult times. And and really, an oppor- it gives us an opportunity to express the hope of Christ uh, and the grace that he has for those that struggle. 
In your chapter on the secular and the sacred, it it exposes, I think, a a challenge for many in the the clergy. Um, There's concern about the secular nature of psychiatry and psychology, the abuse of it, the deviation in some instances away from um, biblical truth. What do you say to the pastor who is wary of referring a, 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 a member of the congregation out of concern over whether or not what counseling they'll receive in that setting will contradict their uh, uh, biblical truth and their counseling? Well, I would say that I think if you're going to refer someone to anyone, I think you should be concerned about what's going to occur when you refer. I think you want to make sure that the person you're referring to is a quality uh, therapist, is a quality provider, and that they're going to do a good job. So I I applaud pastors that are concerned. Uh, And I would say also, you know, I recognize that there's been a conflict between uh, psychology uh, and the faith uh, in the past. The early fathers of psychology were no friends of the faith. Many of them were, you know, anti-faithy, atheistic in their views and very anti-faith in their uh, presentation. Freud believed that religion itself was an illness, a neurosis. So I understand that. I mean, but we're in a, we're in a different time now. Uh, the psychology and psychiatry are very open to faith. Uh, people of faith struggle with these problems, and I think psychology and psychiatry can offer uh, tremendous relief to people that are struggling. So what I would say to the pastor is, you know, do your due diligence. There are undoubtedly mental health care providers in your congregation. Go to them first. Ask them who they would refer to uh, to get to, to begin to get a list of people, and go and meet those individuals and mm-hmm. ask them. Everyone that we refer to from the center that I run, we vet them ahead of time. We want to know what type of provider they are, what type of services do they offer, what type of insurance do they take. But we also want to know. Uh, are they are they providing a faith affirming environment? Are they used to working with uh, highly religious clients? I mean, do they feel comfortable working collaboratively with the pastor? I mean, those are important questions that we ask. If those individuals aren't willing to do that or they don't feel comfortable with that, then that's just not somebody that we'll refer to, and that's fine. We'll just move on and we'll find somebody else. So I think if a pastor does their due diligence, I think they'll find uh, any number of, of providers that they'll feel very comfortable referring to and very comfortable, comfortable working collaboratively with to help their congregants. We're talking with uh, Dr. Matthew Stanford. His book is Grace for the Afflicted, a Clinical and Biblical Perspective on Mental Illness. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, but do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Matthew Stanford, CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston, and adjunct professor in the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Baylor College of Medicine and the Department of Psychology at the University of Houston. His book, Grace for the Afflicted, A Clinical and Biblical Perspective on Mental Illness. Now, one of the questions that you address that I know is uh, weighs heavily on the minds of those who are uh, concerned with this issue is, does the use of medication to treat a mental disorder show a lack of faith in the healing power of God? Uh, I know lots of people struggle with whether or not uh, following a doctor's orders uh, somehow demonstrates a lack of faith. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think people question that and they wonder, should I just pray for healing? Should I have people pray for me? And I would say, you know, I would say this. Let's say God is a God of healing. Uh, whether you're healed via some medication or whether you're healed miraculously, uh, if you're healed, then God was the healer. And I, and I think we have to recognize God's sovereign will 
over all things. And also, clearly in the scriptures, God provides physical remedies. Hezekiah is healed with a poultice of figs. There's there's some examples of physical remedies used in the New Testament. Luke was a physician, and he obviously is uh, is held up in high esteem by the church. I mean, there's nothing wrong with physical remedies, and uh, God has provided those in His providence. I think one of the things that that happens with psychiatric medications, though, is that there is a lot of overprescribing of psychiatric medications, and I think people then begin to question on whether that's necessary or needed. Perhaps I'm just being overprescribed medication, and I think it's important, just like any other medication you would take, that you make sure you get a good opinion and perhaps a second opinion, make sure you get a good assessment to make sure you really have the illness that you're being treated for. And I think you should make sure that your doctor follows up regularly to make sure the medication is being effective and have a conversation with your doctor about how long uh, would you expect to be on that medication and at what dose. Mm -hmm. In the second part of your book, you deal with mental disorders in particular, um, the schizophrenia spectrum, other psychiat- uh, psychiatric uh, disorders. Talk a little bit about the the um, diseases, if you will, of the mind. Yeah, the you know we have a in psychology and psychiatry we have a manual called the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness, and it is a listing of all the mental disorders that we have, all of their symptoms and uh, ages of onset and things like that. Much like you would have in any. Uh, medical discipline that you had, you know, perhaps heart diseases and things like that. And that is how a mental disorder is diagnosed through a set of uh, symptoms that, uh, that the patient reports, that the physician or the practitioner recognizes that a family member might report or that shows up in testing of that individual. And so, you know, mental disorders are not, you know, very, they're not a subjective kind of just guess. There's some pretty specific criteria. And you have a a severity kind of index or dimension, might we say, of, of illnesses from perhaps very, very, you know, all the illnesses can be severe to some extent, but really what people think of as the most severe of illnesses, like the psychotic disorders, where a person loses a, a grip with reality, they may believe that they're someone else, or that they have special powers, or that people are out to harm them. Things like bipolar disorder, where a person is unable, because of the systems in their brain are abnormally functioning, they're unable to control their moods, they swing between low depressive states and very high euphoric, almost psychotic states. Uh, then you would have uh, depressive disorders where a person is very depressed and a very kind of a dark uh, worthlessness, uh, a lot of negative thinking, anxiety disorders uh, where people are uh, uh, oddly fearful of different things or have unrealistic worries about certain things. And anxiety disorders and depression are the most common of the mental illnesses. And then there are kind of less common disorders such as eating disorders and obsessive compulsive disorders. Uh, and so, you know, we can go through a whole litany uh, of these different disorders, but I think one of the things that uh, people should recognize is people are not just kind of, you know, subjectively uh, diagnosed with one of these. It takes a, a set of very specific criteria, just like any medical condition, uh, and that uh, then the, the treatment the individual is given is based on that set of criteria and the actual uh, diagnoses that the person is given. Now, how does a, a mental disorder differ from a neurological disorder? Yeah, that's a great question. And a, a neurological disorder is usually because there's been some type of uh, external insult to the brain or a disease that is actually kind of, might we say, eating away at the brain or causing it to be degenerated. So dementia 
would it be considered a neurological disorder? It may cause some psychological or psychiatric uh, problems, like uh, the person might uh, have aggressive outbursts or, or things like that, or their cognitions might be off. But, but really what's happening is the disease is actually making parts of the brain begin to deteriorate away. Or uh, another example of a neurological problem might be a stroke or a, or a head injury. Those are neurological because there's an insult to the brain. Whereas a psychiatric disorder uh, is typically some type of a disorder that the person is probably born with some type of predisposition for, and that external stressors that have occurred in their life, such as trauma or relationship issues or whatever, whatever's going on in their life, in combination with those biological vulnerabilities, has caused that uh, disorder to manifest. In the final section of your book, Grace for the Afflicted, you write about caring for those who are suffering, and that can be the challenge. Uh, Talk a little bit about what we need to be mindful of as we extend um, love and care for those who suffer. You know, I think in a faith community, I do think we have a lot of questions about these problems. And, you know, I think the first thing that we can do is we can just always take a grace perspective and say, it doesn't really matter what my view is of mental health problems. What's more important is, can I show the grace and love of God to this person who's in distress? I think if people in uh, faith communities did nothing more for people with mental illness than what they do for people that might have cancer or people who might be pregnant and you're trying to help their family, I think you'll make a huge difference in their life. Difference in their life. But if a church wants to go one step further, they can make a safe environment for people with mental health problems in their family. They can offer support groups. They can offer a sermon series on mental health issues. They can bring people forward to give testimonies around mental health issues. They can educate the population with seminars and, and uh, books in their library and bookstores that they have around a faith and mental, and mental illness. And I think we always have to remember that one statistic that I started out with, and that is people in psychological distress struggling with these mental health problems are more likely to go to a clergy before they, than, than before they go to a psychiatrist or any type of mental health care provider or a physician. And that's a divine opportunity for churches to really serve people that are struggling with some of the most difficult disorders there are to treat and some of the most destructive disorders in the context of a family. What do you recommend when an individual is struggling with a mental disorder or a neurological disorder, but is unwilling to either seek treatment or to um, uh, submit to the treatment that's been recommended? And that's a, that's a great question because it's a very difficult thing. It happens very, very commonly. You'll have adults uh, uh, in their 20s and 30s who don't fully appreciate how ill they are uh, or recognize how damaged their brain is because the perceptions are so off because of that damage or that dysfunction. And then they can literally be delusional. Uh, they can literally be having all types of behavioral issues and then tell you flat out there's nothing wrong with them. I mean, the, the most important thing for the family to do is to become educated about the problem that the person has. Secondly, uh, I think it's important that they set up appropriate boundaries so that they understand uh, what they're, you know, how far they can go with the person, how far the person can go. Bad behavior is never dismissed just because a person has an illness. I think also they become more of a guide than a fixer. I think they can always tell the person, we want to help you get to where you want to be, uh, and they can point them to help. But they have to recognize that they themselves can never fix the individual. They can never make them get care unless they are a danger to themselves or others. So they really have to kind of step back uh, and just provide a kind of a unconditional love situation in which the person knows they're accepted, 
Uh, and it's through that relationship uh, that an opportunity may uh, present itself where they actually can get the person to care. And I think most importantly, you can just pray for them uh, and just uh, you know pray that they may gain insight uh, and that uh, you might have that opportunity to get them to care that they need. And don't always try to start out with the highest level of care. If somebody's saying, no, 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 I'm not interested in going to a psychiatrist, I refuse to go to a psychiatrist, I'm not going to take any medication, or I'm not going to go talk to some therapist, how about getting them to go to a support group? You know, I mean, go to a support group with them. I mean, try a different level of, of care, something that's much simpler and not perhaps as scary. Uh, and that way, the individual might be willing to begin to kind of take a step towards recovery. Well, the book is titled Grace for the Afflicted, a Clinical and Biblical Perspective on Mental Illness, published by InterVarsity Press. Dr. Stanford, thank you so much for sharing your insight and helping to equip particularly uh, believers in the body of Christ so that we can love those among us who suffer uh, well and with the love of Christ. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, we're going to talk about a couple of the challenges that the church faces. For example, the rising teen suicide rate uh, in the church. It's a message that uh, the church can't afford to miss. Also, doctors are clashing over euthanasia for the mentally ill. We'll tell you more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back seven minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the previous hour, we talked with Dr. Matt Stanford. His book is titled Grace for the Afflicted, a Clinical and Biblical Perspective on Mental Illness. And I was struck by a couple of articles that I found recently, one on Christianity Today. Uh, the other, I'd have to look uh, here in just a moment. Uh, but regarding um, uh, mental health and uh, perhaps an opportunity or a missed opportunity for the church, Christianity Today's headline uh, read that with rising teen suicides, the church cannot afford mixed messages on mental health. Uh, the writer, Melanie Springer Mock, says that this summer on lawns all over the small hometown or her small hometown, a crop of signs appeared bearing witness to what had happened in our, our area over the past year. Several teen suicides had rocked our quiet community in Oregon's Willamette Valley, and people were understandably distraught. That's, of course, our community. We ask the kinds of questions communities must confront when shocked and shaken by similar tragedies. Why? Why are teenagers taking their lives? Who has uh, uh, to blame, or rather, who is to blame for their despair? Uh, What could be done to stem that tide of loss? Well, the white and black signs no larger than uh, those that flourish during election season were one mother's answer to those questions. On a weekend morning, Amy Wolf posted 20 signs around town, each with a singular slogan, You matter. Don't give up. Your mistakes do not define you. You are worthy of love. In just a few weeks, her campaign spread to other communities across the state of Oregon and neighboring states. Anecdotal evidence suggests young people, including students in Newburgh schools, have found hope in these messages. She reports hearing from those who have been encouraged to persist in living despite their despair, which is another subject, their despair. As young people, yet for our community and for many others, where one self-inflicted death is one too many, a small though significant positively positivity campaign cannot be the end of any effort to combat teen suicide. While affirming that you matter is an important step in helping those struggling with mental illness diagnoses, communities need to take other significant actions to reach those who grapple moment by moment with despair and suicide ideation, particularly as such a young age. According to the U.S. 
U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The rate of suicide for girls aged 15 to 19 doubled between 2007 and 2015. And there was a similar, though significant, uptick in suicide rates for boys. A Time article in late 2016 indicated that though there has been a substantial increase in teens who are depressed, the country has uh, has not seen corresponding growth in resources for mental health options. In 2014, a study more than 3 million adolescents in the United States had a major depressive episode in the past year. And yet most schools and most communities remain unprepared to address the challenge they face. Given these startling statistics, our country's youth face a major mental health crisis, one that the church and its pro-life mission need to confront urgently and compassionately. Now more than ever, Christians are recognizing the need to reach those with mental health diagnoses. Writers like Sarah Lund and Amy Simpson name the stigma that often accompanies mental illness and challenge readers, uh, challenge uh, those who uh, read to see mental illness for what it is, a health condition caused by psychological change in the brain and one that can inflict tremendous suffering, especially if left untreated. Yet for many, the stigma, stigma rather of mental illness remains and those in the church with diagnoses often suffer in silence. Having heard that the joy of the Lord is their strength and that they need only pray more to be healed or that happiness will accompany the faithful, many who suffer from mental illness keep their diagnoses a shameful secret. One silent sufferer was Madison Holleran, an Ivy League athlete who, months into her first year in college, took her life in 2014. Her story was told in Kate Fagan's excellent new book, What Made Maddie Run? The Secret Struggles and Tragic Death of an All-American Teen. In What Made Maddie Run, Fagan, a writer for ESPN, narrates the last few months of her life using interviews with family and friends alongside her texts, emails, social media accounts to piece together the potential forces that led her to make her life-ending decision. By all appearances, Holleran was a picture-perfect life. I remember her story very well, personally. And the 18-year-old, she writes, uh, social media platforms presented an always happy, always positive identity. Even during her months-long battle with a deepening mental illness, Holleran attempted to uh, front a different persona, making her death all the more shocking to many who knew her well or at least thought they did. While Fagan refrains from identifying any singular reason why Holleran took her own life, what made Maddie's, uh, Maddie run suggests the stress of being a college athlete played a role. Holleran's experience as a pin cross, uh, cross-country runner reflects the intense pressures put on young athletes. More significantly, a majority of those with mental illness experience the onset of their disorder in late adolescence or early adulthood. For many, the transition to college exacerbates symptoms while also isolating the sufferer who is often away from the support of family and close friends. The connectivity provided by the Internet does little to mitigate that isolation. And for Holleran, compelled to present the best possible images of life at Penn, social media intensified her loneliness rather than alleviating it. Part of Fagan's reporting included analyzing Holleran's texts and browsing history. And while there was no indication that Fagan was bullied online, this is another parent's fear that accompanies Internet access and its relationship to suicide, probably for good reason. In a recent court case, Michelle Carter was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter for convincing her boyfriend to take his life. The documentary Audrey and Daisy, uh, which streams on Netflix, flicks rather, provides chilling evidence that online bullying can have devastating consequences, especially for teen girls who have been sexually assaulted. Well, she goes on and I won't uh, read all of her article, but she uh, writes that unfortunately, a simple You Matter campaign probably 
would not have been enough to reach someone battling so intensely with mental illness as Holleran presumably was. Still, the ideology upon which the campaign was founded should be at the heart of the church's engagement with young people who struggle with mental illness diagnoses. The idea that every single person matters because every person is an image bearer of the creator and perhaps uh, creating an environment in which being honest about how you're doing is um, is the standard. It's the norm. The expectation is that we are all fallen and flawed in our particular struggles may differ dramatically from one another, but they are all struggles worth um, mentioning and certainly worth uh, bearing the burden of them together. And then there was the AP story by Maria Chang. She writes that after struggling with mental illness for years, uh, Cornelia Gertz was so desperate to die that she asked her psychiatrist to kill her. And this is someone suffering from mental illness, not a, uh, a, a life ending uh, illness. Her sister worried that her judgment was compromised. The 59 year old was taking more than 20 pills a day, including antidepressants an opioid, a tranquilizer, two medicines often used to treat bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. But about a year later, October 7th, 2014, she received a lethal dose of drugs from her doctor. I know it was Cornelia's wish, but I said to the psychiatrist that it was a shame that someone in treatment for years could just be brought to the other side with a simple injection, said her sister, Andrea Gertz, who believes society should try harder to accommodate the mentally ill. Cases like Gertz reveal how difficult it can be to navigate the boundary between individual freedom and protecting vulnerable patients when it comes to euthanasia. According to confidential documents obtained by the Associated Press, such cases have fueled a clash between leading euthanasia practitioners that suggest doctors may have failed to meet certain legal requirements in some euthanasia cases, although there is no implication that patients were killed improperly. Well, one might debate that point, but I'm quoting here. Aside from Belgium, euthanasia is also legal in Canada, Colombia, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. Only Belgium and the Netherlands allow it for people with mental illness. In most cases, euthanasia is, is performed on people with a fatal illness like cancer who have only weeks to live, or at least that's the expectation. Euthanasia is not permitted in the United States at least not yet, but six states and Washington, D.C., including both Oregon and Washington, allow assisted suicide where doctors provide people with a deadly dose of medication. People must be terminally ill and procedure is forbidden for psychological suffering. Says Dr. Levy Finepoint, one of the psychiatrists who signed off on the Gertz death, the woman suffering from mental illness, I always regret that we couldn't do something else. At the same time, I'm part of the relief for the patient. Like many in Belgium, she believes that when modern medicine can't relieve pain, euthanasia, when doctors actively kill patients, should be an option. But she appears more inclined than most to approve euthanasia, some colleagues uh, say. Well, I won't go on to uh, finish the, uh, the article, but it, um, it illustrates uh, two points that the body of Christ must be aware of, better prepared for uh, those with mental illness, um, in responding, and uh, Dr. Stanford's book may help uh, look at what the scriptures have to say in view of what uh, the clinicians have to say to help us navigate those very troubled waters. Again, Grace for the Afflicted, a Clinical and Biblical Perspective on Mental Illness, published by InterVarsity Press. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Trump administration, after years of litigation, has settled lawsuits with Tea Party and uh, other conservative groups who say they were unfairly targeted by the IRS under the previous administration. Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced today that the Justice Department had entered into settlements with Tea Party groups whose tax-exempt status was significantly delayed by the IRS dating back to 2013, based solely on their viewpoint or ideology. The settlement involves payments payments to the plaintiffs and an apology from the IRS. The targeting scandal drew heavy attention back in 2013 when the IRS admitted it applied extra scrutiny to conservative groups applying for nonprofit status. Lois Lerner, then head of the exempt organization's unit responsible, uh, became the public face of the scandal, though um, other IRS officials were involved as well. Well, Jeff Sessions said that uh, groups with names involving Tea Party or Patriots or those with specific policy positions concerning government spending were subject to inappropriate criteria to screen applicants. Applications. The IRS's use of these criteria as a basis for heightened security was wrong and should never have occurred, Session said in a statement today. Uh, it is improper for the IRS to single out groups for different treatment based on their names or ideological positions. And while the IRS did not immediately respond to the request for comment on the decision, court documents show that the agency did offer an apology, which uh, was uh, was called for. Well, investigators looking into the so-called Trump dossier were not surprised when news broke Tuesday night that the Hillary Clinton campaign and the DNC working through the Democrats law firm Perkins Coy financed the salacious and unverified uh, compilation of allegations of Trump collusion with Russia in the 2016 presidential campaign. Now, one thing that should be mentioned is the initial funders, apparently uh, they're yet to be named, but were opponents in the Republican Party of uh, Donald Trump's candidacy. Uh, there had been plenty of talk about the Democrats and Perkins Coy, so much that investigators almost assumed that was the case. But it wasn't until the Washington Post broke the story that it was confirmed. One lawmaker joked Tuesday night saying, I'm shocked. Who could have ever guessed? Well, knowing that the Clinton campaign, the DNC and Perkins Coy supported the dossier, along with some Republican opponents, is not the end of the story. However, the most important next step is the FBI. Sometime in October of 2016, that is, at the height of the presidential campaign, Christopher Steele, the foreign agent hired by Fusion GPS to compile the Trump dossier, approached the FBI with information he had gleaned during the project. According to a February report in the Washington Post, he reached an agreement with the FBI a few weeks before the election for the Bureau to pay him to continue his work. It was an astonishing turn. The nation's top federal law enforcement agency agreed to fund an ongoing opposition research project being conducted by one of the candidates in the midst of a presidential election. Well, the idea that the FBI and associates of the Clinton campaign would pay Mr. Steele to investigate the Republican nominee for president in the run up to the election raises further questions about the FBI's independence from politics, as well as the Obama administration's use of law enforcement and intelligence agencies for political ends. That's what the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley uh, points out. In the end, according to the report, the FBI did not pay Steele, but the dossier did not go away. Indeed, in January of 2017, Comey briefed President-elect Trump and President Obama on the dossier's contents. In recent months, Nunez has been trying to force the FBI to reveal just what it did in the dossier matter. The Intel chairman issued a subpoena to the FBI in August, and in the time since, not a single document has been produced to the committee. 
the FBI and the Justice Department have spent most of that time talking about possibly complying with this or that part of the subpoena, but so far, nothing. The same is true of Grassley's inquiry. Well, the new Clinton, DNC, Perkins, Coy revelation will likely increase pressure on the FBI to explain what it did and did not do with the dossier. Certainly, Nunez hopes that uh, that is the case. Uh, When asked on Tuesday night what would happen next with the uh, FBI, he responded their best option at this point is to bring all the documents tomorrow to the Capitol. Of course, he won't be holding his breath. In the meantime, the Department of Justice cleared the FBI informant who brought the Uranium One scandal roaring back into national headlines with his claim through his lawyer to have information about the Clinton Foundation's role in all of that to testify before Congress on Wednesday night. The informant uh, worked undercover to investigate bribery and intrigue in the Russian nuclear industry during the Obama administration and was, until Wednesday, bound by a gag order from speaking about what he knew. According to sources at the Department of Justice, the informant is now cleared to testify about a wide range of issues, including specifically the Clinton Foundation. In a statement, the Department of Justice spokesman Ian Pryor told media outlets, and I quote, as of tonight, The Department of Justice has authorized the informant to disclose to the chairman and ranking members of the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, as well as one member of each of their staffs, any information or documents he has concerning alleged uh, corruption or bribery involving transactions in the uranium market, including but not limited to anything related to Vadim Makarin, and several other names, Uranium One and the Clinton Foundation. It's not yet clear what type of hearing will come from the DOJ's decision, but congressional leaders like Senate Judiciary uh, Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley had made clear that they hoped the information would be forthcoming. In a letter to Victoria Tonzing, the informant's uh, lawyer, Grassley wrote, the reporting, in, uh, the reporting indicates that your client can testify that FBI agents made comments to him suggesting political pressure was exerted during the Justice Department probe and that there was specific evidence that could have scuttled approval of the Uranium One deal, end quote. Well, the informant's story broke last week when Tonzing uh, came to the Hill, the attorney, with her client's story of bribery in the Uranium One Uh, deal. Among other things, she claimed the Obama Justice Department threatened him with loss of freedom. They said they would bring a criminal case against him for violating uh, an NDA. Well, Uranium One, a company that controlled roughly one-fifth of American uranium production, was sold to a Russian nuclear consortium, uh, uh, Rosatom, in 2013, after approval by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS, a chairman, uh, chaired rather uh, by then Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, and including then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and then Attorney General Eric Holder, uh, not to mention speaking fees involving the former president and wife of the Secretary of State. Where this is going, I have no idea, but we do know that the gag order has been lifted and at some point testimony will be given as to the allegations that have been made privately uh, to members of Congress this time around. Well, in fiscal year 2017, real Social Security Administration spending topped $1 trillion for the first time. That's according to data published in the monthly Treasury statement. Now, what does that mean for future generations? That number is not going to go down. It will continue to go up. And, of course, we know Social Security will not be soluble in some point in the not-too-distant future. That was about 37 times as much as the Department of State spent during the year. 
uh, 32 times as much as the Department of Justice and 20 times as much as the Department of Homeland Security. The one trillion uh, uh, dollars spent by the Social Security Administration, and that's rounded down, uh, in fiscal year 2017 was also about 76 percent more than the federal government spent on the Department of Defense and military programs during the year. According to the monthly Treasury statement, uh, the only major spending category that absorbed more money than the Social Security Administration in fiscal 2017 was the Department of Health and Human Services, which spent about one trillion, one hundred and sixteen million, no trillion billion. Well, you know, anyway, they spent more. It's not news that unions have long controlled the Illinois legislature, but the heavy handedness of Springfield increasingly makes the land of Lincoln look more like a thuggery or thugocracy, as uh, some would suggest. Um, behold how uh, they're seeking to criminalize political opponents who support giving workers a choice not to join the union. Well, over the July 4th weekend, the Illinois legislature passed the Orwellian Collective Bargaining Freedom Act. Freedom not being any part of it, banning right to work zones in the state and threatening local officials who enact them with a class A misdemeanor and up to a year in jail. That's the penalty for um, pimping or drunk driving in the state of Illinois. Twenty eight states have passed right to work laws that prohibit requiring workers to join a union. These states have grown faster and boast lower unemployment than those coerced by unionization, which isn't always bad, but at least having the option and the freedom to choose is good. And while the Illinois legislature is a wholly owned subsidiary of the unions, Republican Governor Bruce Rayner has um, uh, promoted uh, allowing municipalities to liberate workers within their borders. This may be the next uh, best option to secession. The Illinois village of uh, Lincolnshire enacted a local right to work zone in 2015, which a federal court blocked. Last November, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a local right to work zone in Kentucky, though the case became moot after the state adopted right to work legislation in January. So your freedom in Illinois to work without having to be or being compelled to join a union has been significantly curtailed by the legislature there. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Taking a look at some of the news that, well, it's a little closer to home. The Vice President uh, uh, Pence said that the United States is going to bypass the United Nations and aid persecuted Christians in Iraq directly. This was during a speech to advocates for the persecuted church. And Mike Pence, the Vice President, unveiled plans for the U.S. Uh, for the U.S. rather, to provide more direct aid to Christians and other minorities facing genocide in the Middle East. The Vice President uh, reiterated the Trump administration's commitment to defending religious groups persecuted by ISIS, announcing plans to visit the region in December and a strategic shift away from funding ineffective United Nations programs. Instead, the Vice President said that Donald Trump has directed the State Department to send aid directly through USAID and faith-based partners. We will no longer rely on the United Nations alone to assist persecuted Christians and minorities in the wake of the genocide and the atrocities of terrorist groups, he told a crowd gathered in Washington for the annual summit uh, of In Defense of Christians. Well, the United States will work hand in hand, the vice president said, from this day forward with faith-based group faith-based groups, rather, and provide uh, private organizations to help uh, those who are persecuted for their faith. This is the moment, now is the time, and America will support these people in their hour of need, end quote. Well, the Christian population in the region has dwindled significantly, as we've covered here before, with two-thirds of believers in Iraq and 
Syria fleeing since 2011. A 2014 Christianity Today cover story by Philip Jenkins assessed how Iraqi Christians were on the edge of extinction there. This is good news, and uh, Frank Wolf, uh, distinguished senior fellow at the 21st Century Wilberforce Initiative, said this is good news, and we want to thank President Trump, Vice President Pence, and all those who have been working diligently on this issue. This should impact humanitarian aid for those living in internally displaced persons and refugees and stabilization assistance for the Christians and Yazidis returning to areas seized from them by ISIS. Well, the U.S. has committed millions to the United Nations Development Program, which some have called out for not doing more to help Christians in particular uh, in Iraq. Well, the money has been spent, but not on the Christian refugees. Nina Shea, who's the director of the Center for Religious Freedom at the Hudson Institute, told conservative news site LifeZite, uh, the U.N. has proven itself to be extremely politicized and unaccountable and should be the last body charged with millions, even billions of dollars, to aid to help persecuted minorities on the brink of extinction. Uh, the vice president himself echoed the U.N. critique at the event, saying, here is the sad reality. The United Nations claims that more than 100 160 projects are in Christian areas, but for a third of those projects, there are no Christians to help, he said. The believers in Nineveh, Iraq, for example, have had less than 2% of their uh, housing needs addressed, and the majority of Christians and Yazidis remain in shelters. Projects that are supposedly marked finished have little more than a UN flag hung outside an unusable building, in many cases, a school. Well, many experts on humanitarian efforts in the region agreed that the United States made the right move in shifting its approach. Approach, though questions remain about the logistics and specifics about the plan the vice president referenced. It is the right move. The question is, are we ready for it? That's a quote from Chris Seipel, president emeritus of the Institute for Global Engagement, or IG. Even with a shift away from the U.N. projects, advocates agree oversight will continue to be a challenge. The U.N. projects for the minorities have been called significant and cosmetic, or rather insignificant and cosmetic by the Christian leaders on the ground. There have been persistent reports of pay to play in the U.N.'s awarding of contracts. Uh, Shea told Christianity Today, now USAID and its contractors will face a big responsibility to assure they listen to authentic community voices about the projects most needed and to ensure Corruption is not, again, a large-scale problem. Again, from this day forward, the vice president said in his remarks. Well, Colombia made peace with its primary rebel group last December, but one of its well-known missionaries still stood accused of plotting terrorism with them. Well, until last month, when a Bogota judge finally threw out the charge of rebellion levied against Russell Stendhal in 2015, the American missionary was accused of collaborating with FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the guerrilla group that warred against the Colombian government until signing a controversial peace treaty late last year. Well, Stendhal 61 is the son of linguists with uh, Wycliffe Bible translators. He moved their family to Columbia in 1964 when he was about eight years old. When Stendhal was in his late 20s, he was kidnapped by the FARC and spent more than four months living among them, mostly with a rope uh, slip knotted around his neck. Before an anonymous donor paid $55,000 for his ransom, he shared the gospel with his captors several times. He went on to preach the gospel to all sides of the Western Hemisphere's longest-running conflict. Conflict. The American embassy warned him not to return to Colombia, but he did. Stendhal founded the Columbia for Christ ministry and regularly traveled through the conflict areas, distur- distributing Bibles, Christian books, and solar-powered radio f- uh, fixed-tuned to his station that broadcast the gospel throughout Colombia. 
the September dismissal of the case against uh, Stendhal at Bogota's uh, Circuit Criminal Court Number 15 ends what his attorney described as a long, drawn-out series of legal maneuverings following his uh, February 2015 arrest. The ruling cannot be appealed. The judge in the initial hearing held one day after the police detained Stendhal under the secret warrant throughout the charge, but Chief Sectional Prosecutor uh, kept the uh, case alive through ongoing appeals. The backbone of um, the case against Stendhal was the testimony of four men who claimed that the missionary was Al Gringo, a FARC commander seeking to overthrow the Colombian government. Among the claims were assertions that Stendhal operated radio communications for the terrorist organization. He denied those allegations, said that two of the men, one of whom was an ex-FARC guerrilla, demanded he pay each of them $125,000. When he refused, the men proceeded with their threat to claim to... to um, to state authorities that Stendhal was involved with the group. He has now been exonerated. They have dropped the terrorism case against him. And last week, Nepal enacted a law to curb evangelism by criminalizing religious conversions, joining neighboring countries like India and Pakistan, where the region's small but growing Christian minority faces government threats to their faith. The Nepali government has taken a regressive step as this law severely restricts our freedom of expression and our freedom of religion or belief. That's a quote from Tanka Subedi, who's the chair of the National Religious Liberty Forum to Christian Solidarity Worldwide. The pastor is one of an estimated 375,000 Christians living in the former Uh, Living in the former Hindu kingdom, the criminal code bill, which the parliament approved in August and the president signed last Monday, establishes constitutional protections for Hinduism, which 80 percent of the population practices by restricting religious conversion and hurting of religious sentiment or blasphemy. According to a Nepali Christian site, a section of the new law reads, no one should involve or encourage in conversion of religion. No one should convert a person from one religion to another religion or profess them uh, their own religion and belief with similar intention by using or not using any means of attraction and by distributing religion or uh, belief of any ethnic group or community that that uh, being practiced since ancient times. Well, it's sort of clumsy. Um, language, but if found guilty, there's punishment of five years of imprisonment, a penalty of 50,000 rupees, which is about $770. If foreigners are found guilty, they'll have to be deported within seven days after completing the imprisonment in the third clause. Finally, uh, Video Angel or Vid Angel, a movie filtering site backed by pro-family evangelical groups, declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy this week so they can continue to develop um, during the ongoing copyright battle with Hollywood Studios. The company was forced to take down its customizable video rental service last December after Disney, Lucasfilms, Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox sued it for illegally altering and streaming their content. Despite crowdfunding, a record uh, setting $10 million from pro-filtering supporters, including evangelicals and Mormons, to cover initial legal fees. The Utah-based platform has continued to lose its appeals and faces major penalties if the court ultimately sides with the studio. The bankruptcy filing puts legal action against VidAngel on hold while the company reorganizes. Uh, Forbes is reporting. It's an important step to protect our company as well as its creditors, investors and customers from the plaintiff's efforts to deny families their legal right to watch filtered content on modern devices. That's what the CEO says. The court may say otherwise. He went on to say it also gives us breathing room to reorganize our business around 
the new streaming platform, promote a perf- uh, promote rather and perfect the new technology and seek a legal determination that the new system is fully legal and not subject to the preliminary injunction entered in California. All right. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the weather. What might we expect uh, in 20, well, I guess it'll be mostly 2018, but 2017, 2018, uh, what they're predicting. We'll get into that. And also, we'll talk a little bit about what's happening um, on Friday. So stick with us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. A couple of things I want to mention before we move on to uh, the weather, as if we have any idea of what's actually going to happen. KPDQ is giving away nearly 100 tickets in family four packs to Portland's Singing Christmas Tree. You can visit kpdq.com to enter to win a four pack of tickets to a very special 2 p.m. performance on Saturday, November the 25th at the Keller Auditorium. Now, Portland's Singing Christmas Tree is celebrating 55 years, the 55th season, with a two-hour musical production showcasing both contemporary and traditional holiday music performed by over 350 voices, adult and youth choir voices, dance numbers from the Jefferson Dancers, and special numbers by local actors and musicians. And I'm so delighted that they've invited me to join them once again this year. For more information and to enter to win your free tickets, let me encourage you to go now to kpdq.com. The other thing I wanted to mention is whether your marriage is strong or struggling, A weekend to remember marriage getaway is what every couple needs. Now, I have to tell you, Dan Rice and I, we've never had um, major issues, but we have attended the uh, the weekend to remember. And I tell you, if you have a strong marriage, it will strengthen you and kind of remind you of the parameters and the things that uh, that need to be recalled in order to continue to deepen your love for one another and your uh, commitment. But if you're struggling, there's a great opportunity for you to uh, be reminded or told for the first time what the scriptures have to say about how this marriage thing is supposed to work. You can find out ways to improve communication, resolve conflict, how to restore romance in your marriage. And in fact, they actually build into the weekend to remember time for the two of you to do just that. It's not just one meeting after the other. They encourage you to spend time together talking, enjoying one another's company and so on. So visit weekendtoremember.com for details about the getaway coming to Portland at the Red Lion Hotel on the river, November 10th, through the 12th. That's weekendtoremember.com and use the promo code weekend to save on your registration. You may save on the registration. It may save your marriage. It's a great opportunity to spend some time together around God's word and what marriage is supposed to be all about. Well, for Portlanders and Beavertonians and Hillsboronians and everyone else, are still shivering at the memory of last winter's record cold. Do you remember? It's hard to believe we had such a warm summer, a beautiful hot summer, in fact, that we had um, quite a bit of snow this past winter. And for those of us who shiver at the thought of it uh, and those cold temperatures, a winter outlook report released last week may seem like bad news, although it's hard to know what's actually going to happen. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration predicts a cooler than average winter is likely for the northern part of the country. And that includes uh, includes rather, of course, the Pacific Northwest. 
Now, they say don't dig out your snow shovels just yet. The report doesn't necessarily mean the Northwest is in for another abnormally cold winter, according to the National Weather Service a meteorologist Colby Newman. The report just means there's a higher chance that the average temperature between December and February will be cooler, maybe even colder than normal. Uh, that could mean a difference of a few degrees, which most people won't notice. Of course, it could mean much more than that. It's not predictive of whether we're uh, we're going to get snow or a particular cold outbreak, Mr. Newman says. The report was released on the 19th of this month saying, yeah, of this month, saying there is uh, more than a 40 percent chance that temperatures will be cooler than average in the northwest from December to February. It's not clear whether winter will be wetter or drier than normal in the region, though. The report gives equal chances for an abnormally wet winter, an abnormally dry one or average rainfall for the season. Essentially, if I can interpret that for you, it's absolutely useless because all of those options are possible equally. Well, it's still too early to predict whether winter will bring any snowstorms to the region, the report says. But meteorologists won't be able to predict weather events like snowstorms or cold snaps until about a week before they occur. So eh, we're not going to know months ahead or, or, you know, dozen weeks ahead. That's because those events are tied to individual weather patterns. And that's what the meteorologists will be looking at when we get closer to that season. You just sort of have to deal with the weather as it comes. Now, there's wisdom for you. It's highly unlikely that winter will be as cold and stormy as last year. The meteorologist uh, once again says last winter was an anomaly, he said, and it's rare to see another year like it. Uh, it's not to say that it couldn't happen. Again, there's no certainty here at all, but it's very unlikely that it will happen again. Well, for those who want to know more about what to expect this winter, um, uh, this weekend, meteorologists will offer predictions for the coming months. The 25th Annual Winter Weather Forecast Conference will be held um, Saturday at OMSI. And presumably, uh, they put their heads together and they'll come up with something um, that will approximate what we can expect. A couple of things to remember. Between 32 to 39 inches of precipitation, uh, the odds favor uh, by 67 percent, a normal to below normal year. That would be 11 to 20 inches drier than last season. The normal uh, water year at Portland is about 36 inches. The valley temperatures between um, one and three degrees below normal, with the coldest months being December and February. Um, while the data isn't conclusive, as we've mentioned, showing a 50 percent chance of either a quiet year or a big season, um, a lot of people are saying their hunches were going to slightly favor a quiet snow year with a trace of, uh, oh, I don't know, two inches of total snow. I like that little blanket that uh, allows you to get where you need to go, but also presents a very beautiful landscape. Mount Hood snowpack, it looks like um, a great season on the slopes with 105% of the average snowpack or higher. Timberline could see 600 to 700 inches of total snow. Meadows at least 600 inches, uh, inches rather. Uh, snowball is a wild card. Um, uh, no reason to expect more than a 50 mile per hour gust winds during this season coming up. Just some things to think about and look for this uh, winter. But again, you don't know the specifics until we're much closer to the actual events. Well, I want to remind you that on the Georgine Rice show on Fridays, we like to um, 
divert your attention just a bit from some of the major headlines. Although, if there is breaking news, we will break in. But we take a look at the lighter side of the news. As we've been discussing, we're expecting that the JFK files will be released, if not sometime today, perhaps tomorrow, as the date has come and nearly gone that they were supposed to be released. And uh, there may be some disclosures to announce uh, tomorrow, these JFK assassination files. They document details in the probe uh, of the president's uh, death some years ago. Unlike some of you younger listeners, I remember very clearly where I was when the news broke, uh, standing in the hallway at Woodstock Elementary School. We could not believe such a violent event could uh, could take place. And we were so young uh, that I'm not sure we really comprehended what it meant that the president had been assassinated. What we did know is that the president was dead, and that was a sad thing. At that time, um, we were very young, and you respected the president. It didn't matter who that individual was. You respected the office of the president. You didn't really have much grasp of what it mean to, uh, meant rather, to be a Democrat or a, a Republican. And in fact, the two were much closer at that time than they are today. In fact, John F. Kennedy would have been considered a conservative by today's standards. We just knew that the president of the United States, a role that wasn't nearly as important, all consuming as it seems to be today. And it was a very sad day for all of us. Well, the uh, release of the JFK files is something that uh, many have anticipated for many, many years. And my guess is the conspiracy theories that have built up around it will just be replaced by new conspiracy theories, because there's really no bottom to that pit um, that continues to speculate about who did what when and who knew what how and and so on. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what's there. And as I mentioned earlier in the program, some are warning that it's not going to be quite as um, uh, breathtaking as lots of people anticipate. Uh, But nonetheless, that information may likely be uh, revealed tomorrow. And if that's the case, we certainly will um, break into our fun Friday fair and give you an opportunity to uh, hear more about it. Uh, I don't know if you are familiar with uh, Prayer Works. It's a program we have here on the program on the uh, at the station, I should say. If you are in need of prayer and uh, you just don't know where to turn, if you value having a chance to pray for others, want to let you know that 93.9 KPDQ is partnered with Adventist Health to provide a 24-7 prayer network. It's called Prayer Works. It's an online community where you can post your prayer requests, concerns, and struggles. You can put as much or as little detail as you deem appropriate. You can even share a bit more of your story, read other people's requests and stories, and let them know you're praying for them, too. It's an encouragement to be praying, prayed for and to be praying for others. Visit kpdq.com, keyword prayer, and join the PrayerWorks prayer community today. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.